Okay, here we are again, Backyard Professor Live Sessions. I am very excited for this morning's session. I I advertised it last night in my previous podcast. I did have a, uh, a session this morning where I talked more about the book on called Method Infinite. Dr. Nick Letursky is going to join me today. He is one of the authors of the book. He is the main author because he's the one that started this magnificent project 20 years ago. Now, we've been waiting for 20 years and kind of somewhat in the last 10, ribbing him and Cheryl Bruner, Bruno and Joe Steveswick about it. You know, when's the book going to come out? When's the book going to come out? What are you saying in it and all that? Well, they promised to deliver and holy cow, they have delivered. We've got a tremendous book of learning for us to jump into. I have reached out to both Dr. Letursky and to Cheryl Bruno, and they have both agreed to come on the show here and give us their perspective, give us their desires and wishes for the book. Tell us about their research. Tell us why they're interested in this subject, etc. And so this is going to be a very fun discussion with Dr. Nick Letursky. He told me a little bit about his background. I'm going to just share what I wrote down. I, I wasn't smart enough to pull out my pen immediately, so I'm going to share some ideas. And if he wants to elaborate on that, he more than can. Oh, hey, Doug Vincent, welcome. And Gail Capson, welcome. Good to see you again, Gail. You were here earlier this morning. I'm going to have Doug Vincent, pay attention, you on today at two o'clock to also discuss his understanding of Method Infinite. Um, he purchased the book on my recommendation a week or so ago when I was ranting and raving about it, and I will continue ranting and raving about it for several years, I'm sure. So I love some of his ideas. So we will get talking together this afternoon, Vince. Uh, cancel all appointments. You're coming on with me, pal. <laughs> Dr. Letursky. Uh, I have known him online. I have never met him yet. I would love to make that happen someday in this particular incarnation. Uh, I became good friends with him online. Uh, it was his and Joe Swick's influence and spirit and attitude that helped me decide to become a Freemason. So I'm very grateful for that. But one thing I noticed about Nick um, when we were on various message boards or email lists or whatever, and, you know, you banter back and forth and you have conversations and all, <clears throat> he always seemed to have, uh, what I would call an upper, uh, an upper crust answer, not in the negative fashion of being hoity-toity. There's nothing hoity-toity about Dr. Letursky. He is, he is in his mid-50s, and he has acquired his doctorate degree. Now, come on. That's impressive. Don't tell him I said that. It'll swell his head. However, I'm just saying, I, I'm just so proud to be associated with him to know that here's a man who has such an incredible drive, such a determination that in his 50s, he acquires a PhD in depth 
psychology, D-E-P-T-H. Uh, when he told me that yesterday on the phone, I go, death, death psych, it's a weird word, isn't it? So it's D-E-P-T-H. So I'm very excited to have Dr. Letursky on this program. He has two master's degrees. <laughs> that's, that's just so cool to know. Uh, one in spiritual guidance. Now, uh, Nick has never lost the esoteric angle of his research and his attitudes. And then his other master's was in depth psychology, which did prepare him to receive his doctorate just earlier this year. So it is a thrill for me to have uh, Dr. Letursky on. I've got him on the phone. What I'm going to do is I'm going to monitor the chat for the few minutes and make sure that you can hear him. Uh, so Dr. Letursky, I have introduced you with what I remembered writing down. Welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Gary. I appreciate being here. Uh, hopefully everybody can hear me. Uh, so far as I can tell, they can. Would you guys let me know if you can hear Dr. Letursky? This is going to be a phone interview. Um, and we, what I would like to do first, uh, Dr. Letursky, why don't you, uh, I, I know it's not in the way of uh, being arrogant or, okay, I'm going to move this phone just a little bit. He says, you're just a little faint, not bad, but um, not in the way of arrogance or, or uh, egotism, but uh, would you would you just kind of tell us about your journey into your journey into receiving your master's degrees, plural, and your, your doctorate degree. And here you've stuck with 20 years of research, and then you finally got this book out. Would you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So um, <clears throat> this book really had its origin in 2002. Um, when, at that time, I was living in Nauvoo. And throughout my, throughout my life, I had always had an interest in Freemasonry. Um, when I was growing up in Washington State, our little town had a Masonic temple right down in the center of town. And the architecture of it and the, the, the uh, signage and everything just always intrigued me. I remember even as a little kid, you know, always looking for that building whenever we drove downtown. Oh, yeah. And so, so finally in 2002... I decided to reach out uh, to the fraternity, and, and as a result, I actually became the first Latter-day Saint uh, to be initiated in Freemasonry within Hancock County, Illinois, since the Mormons left in the 1840s. Oh, wow. So I, I joined Denver Lodge number 464 uh, there in Hancock County, uh, wonderful, wonderful men, and... Prior to that, uh, I had been very steeped in Joseph Smith's teachings and in the history of Mormonism. And so when I went through the ceremonies, you know, the, the three Blue Lodge degrees of Freemasonry, I just kept getting pinged on Joseph over and over. Uh, I just kept hearing things that he had said or things that he had done that kept lining up with what was happening in those ceremonies. Yeah. And so and, this is while you were in Illinois then. Yes, sir. Go, going through the masonry in Illinois. Oh, well, that's fantastic. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, kind of naively at the time, 
I thought, well, gosh, maybe Freemasonry was a prophecy of Joseph Smith. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. That's what actually got me started in the research. Um, Don't look for that in the book. It's not true. (laughs) That curiosity is what got me started. That's spectacular. And and so uh, being there in Hancock County gave me the advantage of having access to a lot of original records. And what I found in doing that is that so many other authors over the years had either misunderstood what they were reading because they were not Masons, or in some cases they outright misquoted the sources. And what seemed to have happened is one person would look at that and write whatever they wanted, and everybody else played telephone because nobody went back and rechecked the originals. So, for example, I had the chance to look into the original minute books of Bodley Lodge in Quincy, uh, which you know interacted with Nauvoo Lodge. How far back did those go in date? Oh, I don't remember the, the founding date, to be honest. But I, you, I you were back in Joseph together. Smith's era in those Lodge oh, minutes? Yes. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yes. Yes, I was looking at the original minutes from that time. And just to give you an example of how that made a difference, a lot of Mormon writers, and uh, you discussed these the other night on your show, a lot of um, LDS writers in particular were would talk about the fact that the Mormons first asked for a recommendation uh, to allow a lodge in Nauvoo from Bodley Lodge in Quincy. Uh-huh. Uh, in, in, Maso- in Masonic practice, you need to get that recommendation from the nearest lodge. Okay. Uh-huh. And, and, but what had happened is no, none of the Nauvoo Masons had ever bothered to go visit Bodley Lodge. So now, how far away the was the Bodley Lodge from Nauvoo, Dr. Letursky? 50, 50 miles. 50 miles. So within a day and a half travel anyway. Sure. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So none wow. of them had gone there. And therefore, nobody in, nobody in Bodley Lodge had ever sat in Lodge with any of the individuals who were trying to form the Nauvoo Lodge. Oh, you have in order to issue that recommendation, you have to know them as Masons. Okay, you have to have Mm -hmm. sat in lodge with them. Right. And since since that had never happened, they could not. Under the laws of Freemasonry, issue that recommendation. That's all laid out very clearly in the records. Uh-huh. But many Mormon writers instead posed this as religious prejudice. Oh, what an interesting, yeah, that you can kind of, yeah, see, there's the value of having the original records because now we can kind of detect where a particular bias is in order to get a certain point of view presented and believed. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, Absolutely. So I did a lot of travel over the next several years, Uh, even went down to Arkansas, for example, to the lodges in the towns where members of the the Baker Francher wagon train came from, those who were involved in the Mountain Meadows Massacre. I went back to those lodges and talked to the lodge secretaries in those areas. 
And, you know, because I was a Freemason, that gave me a certain amount of uh, access sure. and, and instant, instant friendship, if you will. Sure, sure. So, so I had, for example, one of these secretaries opened up a back closet, dug through boxes, clear in the back of the closet in an orange crate that was layered with duct tape. <laughs> <laughs> had never been had never been opened in his memory in his decades in the lodge and he opened that up and in there was a handwritten record from the lodge and that handwritten record showed that people involved in the uh, trial and massacre of parley p pratt uh, were members of that lodge Oh my goodness! Yeah, he and, was. And you, when you, was he killed? Hit, 1854. I believe that's correct. Yes. Yeah. But you know this, and of course Hector McLean, uh, the one who led and actually carried out the killing, it is openly said that he gathered some of his Masonic brothers to aid him in that. And there are other details in the killing that make it clear that it was aimed. Uh, at the fact that Harley P. Pratt had you know, essentially violated his Masonic obligations by taking on Eleanor McLean as a wife when she was not divorced. Oh, and, oh, interesting. Now that puts a, yeah, that puts an extra light on this as well. Uh, because, you know, the, the, the dialogue, the, the discussion is, well, Party Pratt was an apostle and he was out doing his missionary work. And so sure. it, it is a, a religious prejudice. Boy, I mean, this is uh this is direct right spot on research from the greatest primary source you could get, isn't it? I mean, this right. is pristine right. research. I love this. That's awesome. <laughs> you had to be thrilled. Oh, I was, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, that- and- so, so this is this is the problem that has been the case before Method Infinite. You had Masons who tried to write on the similarities without really understanding Mormonism. Oh, you had uh-huh. Mormons trying to write, uh, usually apologetics, right. without really understanding Freemasonry. <laughs> yeah. So, so even with the best of intentions. These authors didn't know what they were reading at the time. That's that game of telephone you were talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So before this book, the only person who had an attachment to both traditions was Merv Hogan. Um, Yeah. He never actually, he never formally published anything. He put out a lot of little monographs that he self-distributed. Now he was the Salt Lake Mason, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah, he it's just it's recently so passed was, away, didn't he? Uh, quite some time ago, actually. Oh, really? He's, yeah. He's been dead quite a while. Yeah. Oh, I've read uh, a, I've read a little bit of his perfect. stuff. He's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Some of it's really good. Some of it's less founded. Iffy. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, but Merv, but Merv Hogan was a member of the LDS Church, but nominally. Right. And it, and it show and it shows up in his writing. Sure. He doesn't actually have much of a grasp on Mormon history. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is what we brought to the table. You know, Joe and I both had strong histories in Freemasonry, uh, strong involvement, Joe more so than me. And 
as well as you know a long history of uh, of membership in the LDS Church and study of its doctrine and history. Sure. And of course, Cheryl came in with her studies of the esoteric mm-hmm. and and her own strong backing in, in Mormon history. So three of us were able to really weave together our strengths. Yes. Perspectives. Yeah, in that's a way that 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 really worked beautifully. It really did. I'm here to tell you that. Um, I, what I'm hoping might occur, uh, because of the way you guys teamed up is, uh, more, it, wouldn't it be really interesting to team up with say, uh, a, a Freemason and a Mormon, uh, and combine, uh, ideas with multiple authors more often simply because, I think you've demonstrated very well in Method Infinite that three heads are so much more interesting than one. I mean, there's that one chapter on the uh, the Female Relief Society and the Masonic uh, aspects of it that Cheryl elaborated from a paper of hers. That was a nice touch, right? So, yeah, yeah, that's that's awesome. Yeah, and so, you know, I I worked on the book. I frankly, I had about a hundred pages of manuscript completed. Uh huh. And then in the course of all this, um, you know, I had a, a shift in my faith perspective. And I also, you know, came to terms after many years uh, with the fact that I was gay. Uh-huh. And so I, I resigned my membership in the LDS church. And when was that, um, Nick? That was, that was in 2006. 2006, okay. And I, you know, I divorced. I moved away from Nauvoo. Mm-hmm. And and I became very busy in rebuilding my life, as you can imagine. Oh sure. So yeah. So over over the next few years, I was not making a whole lot of progress on the manuscript and such. So I finally decided that it was more important that this get out into the world uh-huh. rather than me just sitting on it. So I turned over the research materials to Joe Steve Swick. Okay. Who had you know, every bit as much background as I did, if not more, uh, to write this book. Joe and I had many, many conversations about the evidence that we had found and how these things work together. Uh, But Joe was not making much progress on the manuscript itself either. He was organizing and thinking. Yeah. Eventually, eventually (laughs) Joe met Cheryl and she became involved in the project. And, you know, Thank goodness for Cheryl, because she was the one saying, we have to stop organizing things and write. (laughs) Oh, yeah. The woman's touch. That's very interesting. Yeah. You needed a writer. The researcher was covered. You and Joe covered that angle very well. Yeah. I had a whole lot of sometimes full day long conversations with Joe myself when you guys were working on this manuscript. And by that time I had become a Freemason. And so uh, we were, we were kind of talking and elaborating about some of the ideas that you guys were discussing and finding and all that. But uh, I, I wasn't aware of that. Uh, Cheryl had gotten involved until way, way later and then it was actually being put to paper. So what a great team. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah. you know, Cheryl, I, 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 I kind of joke that this is a 20 year gestation <laughs> and, and 
and Cheryl was the one who carried this baby to term because but there you, you go. Know, the, the vast majority of the you know fingers to to keyboard and, and getting the manuscript out and done was Cheryl's work. Yeah. Um, yeah. I became I you know Cheryl brought me back in to take a more active role again for the last few years. Oh good. As good. things were finalized and and you know I helped make some changes in the end as well. Uh, but you know we we really were able to work together in a way that that worked beautifully. Yeah, yeah, it really and, did. You can tell. Yeah. You can tell the by the writing and the and the uh the chosen subject matter essentially you just basically uh began uh before joseph smith was born giving the the a little bit of, enough of a direction in the historical context and then you just simply went all the way through joseph smith's life and i, I have to say really I, I know it was supposed to be a much larger book than it is. It is a wonderful sized book. And of course I could read five more of this kind of caliber, this size. So you guys might have some follow-ups to do who knows, but uh, the way you ended it on Joseph Smith, I thought was a good move instead of taking it all the way up into Salt Lake city, Brigham Young. And maybe that's a second book or third or whatever, but yeah, yeah. That was well done. I think you're going to see a number of articles from Cheryl and I. Oh, uh, good. Future, uh, you know, fleshing out some interesting stories uh, that could not be included in the book. Oh, we're very whether, looking forward whether, to that. Yeah. Whether yeah. just a matter of editing or the fact that we did stop the sense of Joseph's life. There are interesting things that happened after that. There are. Uh, yeah. And, and stories yeah. to be told that we will probably be publishing articles in addition to this. Excellent. Excellent. Um, I have a question that's been asked in chat. If I could just ask you real quick, sure. uh, let's kind of include the uh, good morning, Gail. Good to see you. Um, it is by Absalom and Absalom asks, is it true that Joseph shouted, is there no help for the widow's son when he was shot? Would you, uh, would you like to address that one briefly? Absolutely. So um, as Joseph was leaping or falling out of the window of the second story of Carthage jail, uh, he called out the words, Oh Lord, my God. And that's as far as he got before he was shot and, and fell down to the ground outside the jail. Uh, it is clear from the sources that people in the know were absolutely clear that he was offering the, the grand hailing sign of distress of master mason okay john taylor for example wrote an excoriating uh, editorial after the murder and and said you know what what think ye brethren of the mystic tie and, and went on to describe how there were masons in the crowd outside the jail and joseph's call had gone unanswered yeah, there have been other authors who have tried to argue against this fact, mm -hmm. uh, and, and we we talk about the alternate views in the book. Sure, uh, yeah, a little bit. Writers have tried to say, "Oh, he was just praying because he was going to be brought into the celestial kingdom." Right. Uh, that is certainly not what you know. Leading Latter Day Saints of the time said uh, he was doing. And 
you know, one of their arguments is that, well, there's a, a hand motion or an arm motion associated with that grand hailing sign of distress. Right. And what they don't realize is that, uh, you know, in Masonic ritual, particularly in Illinois, you are specifically told that, you know, yes, the ideal form is the words and the gesture, but any Mason who sees the gesture or hears the words is expected to respond. So in other words, given, given the situation, um, either the gesture alone or the words alone are just as uh, legitimate, if you will. Sure. Of an exercise of that call as the full performance would be. Yeah, that's that's so, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so we do believe it was just abundantly clear that that's what Joseph is doing. Okay, that, thank that, you. That begs that that begs the question, of course, because you did have Masons in the crowd and they did not fund his defense. Right. Uh, and there are reasons. There are reasons for that, uh, aside from the fact that they were there to kill him in the first place. Uh, the fact is, the Nauvoo Lodge and its members had already been declared clandestine. Exactly. I was going to say there was there was already friction in, within the right. uh, fraternity with Nauvoo and the Grand Lodge, wasn't it? Sure. Not Absolutely. to mention the other lodges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were yeah. they were yeah. talking about they were complaining a lot of, about quite a few irregularities, is what they call it, I believe. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and you know because those irregularities were not solved their dispensation was pulled by the Grand Lodge. It was pulled and, the, and no, the Mormons ignored it. Right. Yes. Yeah. In, in the Nauvoo, if, if you read the Nauvoo Lodge minutes, it discusses the fact that the Grand Lodge has revoked their charter and they essentially give the middle finger to the Grand Lodge and continue working <laughs> as a lodge. Yeah. But, but by that time, by the time of the murder of the Smiths, everybody knows that the Nauvoo Lodge and its members are clandestine, and therefore they are not regarded by other Masons as legitimate. Oh, okay, now that that brings up. Uh, I've got another patron, Mike Weist, asking: Did the other Masons consider the Nauvoo Lodge as illegitimate? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, outside of the Nauvoo Lodge, they of course kept saying, "Well, no, we're not. We're not illegitimate. Not only that, we're going to keep right on trucking, man." So, yeah. Right. right. So there and was I, tension I clarify, there. Yeah. I yeah. should clarify: we, you know, there were already other Mormon lodges in existence by that time, and of course, they didn't consider the Nauvoo Lodge uh, illegitimate, uh-huh. uh, even though all all of these Mormon lodges were declared clandestine. Joseph's intention all along had been to multiply the Mormon lodges and then create a Mormon grand lodge. A Mormon grand lodge. Yeah. You say that in that book. Yeah. 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 Yeah, That's interesting. And that is probably uh, the basis for the fear factor with the other Mason lodges and the grand lodge, because if these guys are going to be doing the irregular work and they're not really paying attention to the, uh, the Masonic, protocol heaven forbid they get their own grand lodge and then it's going to further split the brotherhood right does that make sense yes absolutely Uh, yeah yeah uh i've got another comment here for you nick um by mormon yeshiva he says well brigham young did call the temple celestial masonry which is very interesting so the early brethren 
as well were basically their descriptions of this helps show why your book so wonderfully incorporates the undercurrent of Freemasonry all throughout Mormonism, whether doctrines, scripture, or the ritual, right? Right. Yeah. If, if you if you look on the cover uh, on the dust jacket of Method Infinite, you'll see you know, on the table in front of Joseph and Hiram, uh, there are the celestial and terrestrial globes and a you know little model of a cornerstone lane. These were actually identified in Heber C. Kimball's journal as items sitting on a table in the celestial room of the Nauvoo Temple. So this idea that you know the endowment was celestial masonry was taken in a very literal sense. Yeah, I'm showing the cover now, Nick. Uh, the, yeah, we can see the two globes now. Do the, is there any? I know the cover was designed by a another gentleman, is there a significance to each one of the books that are being held? Um, there's not. Uh, the, They're just Joseph holding Johnston, books. Right. Joseph Johnston, who, who prepared the cover, uh, really would love to have done that and, uh -huh. and would love to have uh, had them open to particular passages even, but simply trying to deal with the size. Sure. That, that was impossible to do clearly. Sure. Hey, also, while I've got this cover up, Dr. Letursky, could you, uh, was there, do you think that there is a, I noticed behind Joseph, now is that Hiram also? Yes. Joseph Van Hiram. I noticed behind they have drawn in that Jupiter talisman from his uh, magic-seeking, uh, well, or treasure-seeking days. Do you think there's a tie-in with Freemasonry with talisman like that? Absolutely. Oh, really? Yeah, so yeah. Would, would you like to elaborate so, on that for us? That would be fascinating. Sure. sure. So if you look at early Masonic sources, uh, the idea of wonder working shows uh -huh. up uh, as something attributed to Masons. That phrase, wonder working, is talking about uh, ceremonial magic of which talismans play a large part. The, talis the Jupiter talisman itself is specifically created on the basis of a book called The Magus. Yes. Published in 1801. Francis Barrett. And, I've got that. Right. And we know, we know that it's The Magus in particular because there is a small mistake in the formation of Joseph's Jupiter talisman. Yeah. That matches a small printing error in the Magus. In the Magus, yeah. Uh, who was yeah, it that so, did so the... That's uh, where it came from. Yeah, who the was talisman, it? The talisman itself, um, Joseph was uh, Joseph carried on his person. Yeah. And, and this gets argued by apologists who say, well, there was an inventory of everything Joseph had on his person. And it doesn't say a Jupiter talisman <laughs> in there. Right. But it does, <laughs> the inventory does say that various coins were found okay. and understand this talisman is an inch to an inch and it's, a half is a metal round. yeah looks it's like a coin exactly yeah so you know this came in you know these items were returned to emma emma eventually gave the jupiter talisman to her stepson charles bitterman and told him that it was joseph's masonic piece 
of which which was that's uh, right of which he was very fond yeah 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 and, and and that it had been on his person when he was killed and that's been debated now right that was his view right you know obviously just just as you talked earlier about some mormon writers trying to distance freemasonry they've also tried to distance magic because this you just said something about this from his treasure hunting days. That's not likely. This is likely something he actually acquired much later in life. Oh, oh, but interesting. Re regardless, yeah. of, re regardless of when he did, he had, he had it. it at the end. Yep. Uh, you know, Wilford Wood then acquired it from Charles Bitterman. Sure. Apologists love to try to distance this from Joseph. Uh, you know, Ken Godfrey, you know, dear man, I worked with him years ago. Yeah. But... Yeah. At the same time, I really disagree with some of some of what he concluded. Sure, I do too. <laughs> yeah, and you know, part part of what yeah. he said, well, just because he had it doesn't mean he believed in it. Uh, you know, kind of kind of odd arguments like this. Right. But right. Yeah. The, the fact is, the fact is, Joseph did have it, and that thread of magic was closely associated in, in Joseph's formation and his time period with Freemasonry. Um, okay. There will be more coming out on this topic. Of, of oh, Joseph good. The Ceremonial Magician. That's actually my my next book project. So I'm, I'm Oh, sensational. That's that. great to hear. So you are working on another project then? I am. You, oh, wonderful. That's spectacular. Great. And I promise, and I promise not to stay 20 years. <laughs> oh, please yeah. don't. I don't know if you and I are <laughs> young enough to endure that but <laughs> exactly. i don't know though you know the the nice thing i i mean to put a positive spin on that 20-year deal really the nice thing is it gave it a chance to percolate somewhat yeah and so and it gave you guys a chance to uh move back and forth seesaw Continue your researching. And I, I mean, you know, to type up a 500-page book, Cheryl had to be at work on this for quite a while, too. And her bringing you right. back in in the end. And uh, so it's it's all good from my take of it because it made a better book from my point right. of view. So, yeah, I would say, yeah, I would yeah. say the only downside of how long it took us is that um, we shared some of our research a little too freely oh. in earlier years uh -huh. discussing uh -huh. with others. Yeah. And I, I can say there have been a handful of writers in Mormon history who promptly published things that we had oh. shared with them. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. That, that would have been you know, new revelations in, in Method Infinite. Uh, there are still plenty of new revelations. Oh boy, the aren't there though? Yeah, some, I, some of I the get things it. that look familiar are because people, frankly, took our research around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you're trying to. There's a uh, th there's a type of a a scholarly camaraderie that you want to have, and yet on the other right. hand, you want to keep the uh, the scholarly legitimacy and the discoveries of the original author 
board. I mean, you did the leg. Boy, did you do the leg work. That's fascinating that you got down in Arkansas and you actually had the original wreck. I mean, that is stellar research. Would they have, I don't suppose they would have let you take photographs of that and put it in any, any kind of an article or, I mean, you didn't seem to do that. Would that have been wrong to do? Showing the primary uh, research in a photo. I guess you'd have had to get permission if you'd have thought that angle. Exa- but, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, right. And, yeah. and I, I would say, you know, given all this time, I suspect that original launch secretary probably is no longer with us. True. Yeah. It, yeah. He that was totally at the time. Was he? Yeah. 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 Well, that's, but, that's fascinating. You know, but I, I certainly had permission to use the material uh, in, in, my, in my research and such, but I did not seek permission to just you know, outright publish the record. Right. And I right. would not feel that was ethical without the lodge's express permission. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, as it is the, uh, I, I'll tell you personally what I thought was when, I mean, the opening shot of the influence of Freemasonry on Joseph Smith was really exceptional, but the one thing that just really stunned me was this faculty of a brack. Uh, that was so spectacularly done and its relationship to, to Masonic uh, legendary material philosophy. You know, um, I, I had studied the faculty of Abrac, and of course it was through the, uh, at the time, uh, the Greek magical papyri, right? The Betts translation, because they have all those really cool little uh, triangular diagrams with the letters of Brack, A and then AB and then AB. Yeah, and so, but the way you guys did, because we know Lucy Smith really legitimately, she said, well, we weren't off just doing just doing the faculty of a brat. We, we were trying to be good citizens and neighbor. They had a rough time, man. I mean, that was a tough time to constantly have to move and lose your ginseng trade. I mean, I mean, that had to have devastated Joseph Sr. So, but I loved how you guys did that faculty of a brat. Would you like to talk about that? Do you care or do, do we want to leave it for our readers? <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we, can certainly talk, we can certainly talk about that. Like you said, you know, Lucy Max Smith has this wonderful passage where she says, you know, it shouldn't be supposed that we spent all of our time drawing magic circles and pursuing the faculty of a brack. That's right. Yeah. Um, she, yeah. To, to the point to the point of neglecting any other important matters. There you go. But yeah. No, notice she doesn't say. She doesn't reduce the, you know, she doesn't sideline or reduce the importance of those activities. Not she at says, all. You know, yes, there were other important things we tended to as well. But she and did so, put that faculty of a brack in the important yes. issue. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The faculty of a the faculty of a brack, um, as you said, you know, in Greek magical papyri and other magical sources, this is a process really of seeking after the divine name. That that is what is so fabulous about this. I would have yeah. never put that together. How did you guys come to that? That is just so interesting. It's it's actually discussed in Masonic books of Joseph Smith's time. Um, 
George Oliver, George Oliver. yeah, the antiquities. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh huh. And, and George Ford's antiquities of, of, of Freemasonry. So this idea, you know, the, the the name of deity, the true name of God, is considered in a lot of these sources to. It's also referred to as the grand omnific word or the grand omnific word of creation. It's the word God spoke by which he created ah, things. Okay. That tradition is directly associated with the lost word in Freemasonry. Yeah, so that's and a so, really so, big connection. When did Lucy talk about what wasn't, I mean, this was before Joseph became a Mason, of course. Her husband was already right. a Mason, though, right? Um, yes. At that time, yes. Yeah. But barely at the time that she's talking about. Was it? So Joseph, Joseph Sr. was clearly uh, very interested, I would almost say obsessed, with Masonic legend. Uh, back in Vermont, he began digging for treasure. And, of course, that's a magical practice. But there was more going on to it. Than this is Joseph's father, right? right? This is Joseph's right. father. Okay. All right. Right. Joseph Sr. Okay. In Freemasonry, there is the legend that the master's word was engraved on a triangular plate of gold. Yeah. And, and hidden underground. Well, when, by the time Joseph's family begins working at these things, we already have authors like Josiah Priest who are trying to say that the that the Native American peoples are of the Ten Tribes of Israel. Okay. Uh -huh. And, for example, the, uh, the Dartmouth seal, for example, and Dartmouth College was the parent institution of Moore's Charity School that Hiram Smith attended as a young person. Oh, good connection. That, ori yeah. that original... Dartmouth seal actually shows a Native American person holding a book open and forward as a row of other Native Americans walk behind him. So this idea becomes one where, you know, this golden artifact could have been brought here. And people go. are people are already finding valuable items and precious metals in Native American burial. Matters. Yeah, yeah, they are. That that, that was and a big time. deal. I loved how you guys brought that out yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. It's in, it's interesting that every place the Bormans moved up to and including Nauvoo wow. had Native Na mounds. Native mounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there, there are stories of excavating these mounds and, and moving the earth to, to make way for streets in Nauvoo, for example. Zelf the white but, Lamanite. Yes. Right, right. <laughs> so so you have Joseph Sr. doing this treasure digging. Uh, it shows up in his dreams even. He has a dream in which this angel comes to him and says, well, you, you still lack one thing. And instead of saying, well, just tell me, tell me what I need to do, Joseph Sr. takes this as something he needs to know. And he says, well, let me grab a pen and paper in his dream. And the angel says, okay. And in his rush in the dream to grab a pen and paper, he wakes himself up. Oh, <laughs> man. One thing. That would suck. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the newspapers in the area 
are publishing poetry and stories about these same Masonic legends. This is the, oh. the culture and the milieu in which Joseph Sr. is already operating. So by the time, well, just one more thing. The Grand Lodge of Vermont was formed at this time. And I did a study as part of this research of naming patterns of male children in Vermont. And right when the Grand Lodge of Vermont was created, a whole lot of parents in Vermont started naming their boys Hiram. Yeah. After Hiram Abiff in Masonic legend. That's interesting, but isn't it? Yeah. The peak, the peak of that, before it starts to slow down, is the year that Hiram Smith is born. There in Vermont. So he's named according to that tradition. So, so Joseph Sr. Joseph Sr. jumped into that, didn't he? By naming his kid Hiram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. However, however, Joseph Sr. tried to join Federal Lodge number 15 in Vermont, um, which had some Smith family members in it. Is that the one that rejected yeah. him originally? Yes. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, somebody somebody voted against him. He was blackballed. Right. We don't know the exact reason because no one has to give that reason. But right. there are some possibilities. One is that he was known to abuse alcohol in his right. earlier years. Right. Another is the ginseng failure that you brought up earlier. Uh, the merchant in uh, who took advantage of the Smiths and took their money in the ginseng episode turned out to be a family member of somebody in the lodge. Yeah. That happened, that happened after Joseph was blackballed, but already he was becoming a competitor right. against his other family in the ginseng business. Yeah, I, I was I was impressed when you guys uh, tracked yeah. down the the actual value of Joseph Senior's uh, ginseng right. business. We're talking tens of yeah. thousands of dollars here. Right. That right. back then, that's an enormous amount of money. He was doing very well, so that it adds have, to the tenseness yeah. here. Right. Yeah. And and then finally, the other possible reason he was blackballed: Federal Lodge Number Fifteen had some very sophisticated members, and this is a time period where there are still people who believe that Masonic legend is literal history, but many of them are getting away from that belief. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. So, you know, right. people who consider themselves smart and thinking and, and intellectual are getting away from that idea. Uh-huh. To give you an idea of the caliber of the people in that lodge, one of them went on to become a Supreme Court justice. Oh, wow. Yeah. Very so, interesting. Joseph, yeah. So when Joseph Smith Sr. tried to join the Lodge, given his level of enthusiasm around Masonic legend as history, they may have really considered that he'd be an embarrassment. So he was rejected. Oh, yeah. So that, that kind of switched the intellectual impression in the Lodge, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. And Joseph Sr. was absolutely full go gung-ho well, the treasure dig was he was the one that actually said too 
Uh, you guys pointed this out real well, too. It, it was, and I know I think Mike Quinn talked on this, but it's been so long since I've actually completely reread Quinn that this was kind of a good refresher that Joseph Sr. actually wanted to get Joseph Jr. his seer stone. And he he said that to people around him. This is what, this is, this is what I was going to say next. Oh, sorry to jump the gun. <laughs> no, no, no worries. <laughs> but, but yes, when Joseph... Smith Jr. is born, and, and I want to point out that Joseph Smith Jr. is born one or two days away from the solstice. And St. Um, John's Day, wasn't it? Exactly. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's significant. I, I, there's no way to prove it, but I've always wondered um, yeah. if his conception and perhaps birth, given uh, early uh, folk remedies. Yeah. Uh, which, which there were things to induce labor, for example. I, I sometimes wonder if they tried to get him born on that day. Oh, on the solstice. Ah, could have. Yeah, but that's, that's neither here nor there. We can't prove it. Right. But the point is, when he when Joseph Jr. was born, Joseph Sr. ran around town telling everybody that Joseph Jr. was born with a call, which means part of the amniotic sac was over his face. This was a had a long history in folklore of being the signifier of a prophet or seer. Oh, he yeah. Told, so he told people that Joseph had a call and specifically told them that the time would come when they would find him a stone and that he would be able to look in that stone and see anything he wished. So Joseph was trained and formed from birth raised yeah to, to become what he was yeah that and that's a real important insight using the historical record that i i don't recall uh and, and it's not like i'm a massive mormon history reader but i've done my somewhat mild fair share i don't know if any mormon has ever uh, indicated that in that angle before. And I thought that was one of the better parts of your book to get us into the context of look at what we're going to do here in the book. So that, that was really important for me personally. I thought, wow, you know, this is, this is from the get go with the patriarch of the family. So right. <laughs> good stuff. So, yeah. And so, you know, to give you an idea, uh, Hosea Ballou, who was the Universalist minister circuit rider mm -hmm. that actually taught where the Smiths live, was also a prominent Freemason in the area. And oh, how interesting. Yeah. Some, and some of his Masonic speeches are published. Uh, one in particular, he lists out the things that a person must know in order to have faith in God. And it is a dead ringer for many of the articles of faith that Joseph Smith later wrote. So these influences are with Joseph right away from birth. Mm -hmm. He, and as you read Method Infinite, you'll realize that Joseph's whole mission ends up toward ultimately recovering that lost word. Yeah. In, in his early years, you had writers prominent masons who were saying that the time would come when pure Christianity and pure Freemasonry would both be restored 
that they would be hand in hand. Yeah, I actually, I actually indicated that that was one of the, uh, that was one of the themes for me that just made this book a page turner is because uh, this, this idea that Joseph Smith, now the Mormon dialogue, the Mormon story, and, and it is true. It's okay. Let's go ahead and grant them this. Joseph Smith was to restore Jesus's church. But now we know based on the actual, the fuller context, I'll say, of the Masonic influence, Joseph Smith was wanting to also restore the Freemasonry, which George Oliver in his Antiquities said goes all the way back before Adam in the heavens with the angels were Freemasons. And then he brings it to earth right from the start, Adam, and then they handed it down. from That is what Joseph Smith was putting back in. That was an eye-opener for me, Dr. Letursky, because, you know, as missionaries, we go out and we say, well, Joseph Smith brought back Jesus's true church. And that's as far as, as the Mormon version goes, you guys pulled this thing all the way back again to the beginning. Whether it's the beginning of Joseph Smith's life, not his very tail end when he joined, or the beginning of the world, Joseph Smith smack dab in it. I, I really appreciated that part of this book. That was an eye-opener. That expanded my horizon intellectually, scholarly, and spiritually. So that, that was one thing that turned me on. Yeah. I mean, this, this idea that Mormonism has of dispensations where the truth is revealed and then people fall away from it and it has to be revealed again in, in a cycle of new revelation and people falling away. Yeah. This cycle is Masonic. Is Masonic, yes. You, you, see, you see in these early writings the idea that Masonry was revealed to Adam. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, Cain, Cain becomes the origin of spurious Freemasonry. Spurious, that was the word, yeah. Of of masonry that is done without authority and is corrupted. Yeah. Yeah. And eventually it has to be, again, revealed again. And you have other patriarchs in this Masonic tradition. They're all named as Masonic grandmasters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From Oliver, right? Yeah, you're talking right. Oliver. Yeah. So, so this idea. Of oh, and by the way, I'm I'm not I'm not trying to interrupt you. Apologize. Keep that thought for a second. Just right. for my audience, uh, we do have links online to George Oliver's book, Antiquities of Freemasonry, the one that uh, Dr. Letursky and I are, are talking about right now, that is available for free online, just so you understand. That's not a, it's an 1823 text, but that is a very critically important text that you would want to check into right. along with this may method. I just, may, I just bra- may I just brag a little on something about that? Sure, sure. Just this, mor- just this morning, I found a first edition 1823 George Oliver's Antiquities of Freemasonry and purchased it. <laughs> you lucky dog. Nice. Fine. Oh, that's got to be a treasure. That's a treasure right there. Yeah. Now, and then, of course, uh, this 
George Oliver was much more, um, I don't even know how uh, we view him today in Freemasonry. He's much more of a, uh, of a, like, like Joseph Smith senior. He, he, he really loves the, the legendary, the esoteric uh, and, and he wants my impression from, I haven't read him completely yet, but I am working on it. But my impression of his, uh, use of the material is he is he is accepting more or less the historicity of this legendary material. Oh, okay, good. That that's my impression. I just wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. Show you again. You know where this idea of pure Christianity and pure Freemasonry come together. George Oliver was a reverend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that adds he's right not, to it. He's he's not seeing this Masonic lore as something antithetical to religion oh no oh he's putting them all together yeah 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 he wants masonry to be christianity right yeah 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 and that is directly in joseph smith's day i'm I'm saying that out loud for my audience just so you guys are aware of it it's a fun combination what i'm doing right now is reading method infinite and then george oliver's antiquities of freemasonry that's that's a good thing to if you like this subject that's what you want to do and and other writers as well you know salem town for example yes salem town's the other one Uh uh-huh another reverend by the way another reverend a lot of these early writers happen to be Christian clergy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and uh, they, I think part of it, wouldn't part of it have been, actually they probably had to go a little bit silent after the Morgan affair and then they could come back. How long did Oliver live? Do we know? When did he die? I actually don't know. I, I don't either. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? But but he was. We. <laughs> All right. That's interesting. They would have had uh, realistically the. I mean the the William Morgan affair just absolutely kicked out both knees of Freemasonry for a while. They probably would have had to have gone silent. Perhaps maybe that's why they. These uh, these Christian ministers and reverends lost their influence on the public with meshing the Christianity and Freemasonry. And yet there's Joseph Smith. What, what did you tell me yesterday on the phone? What did I tell you that you, you thought he, a ritual genius? Is that how, what? Yeah, I, uh, yeah absolutely. Uh, real, real quick to backtrack. George, the magic Google machine says George Oliver was born in 1782 and died in 1867. So there's that. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, but, but yes, the, the interesting thing for me is, you know, as a person who is no longer a believer in the LDS version of Mormonism, uh-huh. uh, I still, having studied this history, respect Joseph as a ritual and religious genius. That was what, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you cannot dismiss him as an ignorant fool. You cannot really dismiss him as a fraud. He is an authentic ritual and religious genius who did some truly amazing things. It's not my tradition anymore. Right. Right. But it's a tradition that obviously is meaningful and has been for millions of people. Sure. 
But uh, you don't have to cut him down simply because you don't like his method or, or his religion right. yeah. anymore. Yeah. That that can't possibly affect the fact that really seriously, and, and your book again brought this out. Uh, I loved your expression on that because that's kind of the impression. I'm, I'm kind of revamping my own uh, input, outlook, understanding. Uh, man, he put two and two together in so many respects. Yeah. In a in a, and an inspired creative way. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, and that's one thing you know. They, I, I have encountered people at certain points, um, just by the fact that I am personally no longer a member of the LDS Church. They have assumed that this book is an attack on Mormonism. Right. Never having never having read a single word of it, they yeah. just assume. Because not all three of the authors are active temple recommend holding Latter-day Saints. Right, right. And, and I really find that unfortunate because to me, this book is and always has been a love letter to what I see as beautiful and, and glorious in Mormonism. That is very well put, Dr. Letursky. I really like yeah. that. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I will admit that I have... You know, even as an even as an active member of the LDS Church, I identified personally much more with 1840s Mormonism. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you you you've had such a fortunate experience of being the first Master Mason raised in the same state Joseph Smith was killed since Mormons left. That that's that's pretty awesome. That's a, quite a connection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. So you know, so so yeah, this this book to me is one that there's there's nothing in this book that should destroy faith. I agree. A, I agree. A reader, a reader who comes from a faithful perspective can't help but see, you know, the hand of God leading Joseph through these experiences. As a non-believer, yeah. those who come to this book as non-believers, I feel are still going to see a genius at work. I suspect so. A, a, a truly amazing accomplishment. Yeah, you can't help it and, once and you see the history. Fa just, a, just a fascinating story. Well, and then this brings up this point too, uh, Nick. Maybe, and it's odd. I might be pulling at straws here. I don't know. But um, do you think that that could actually be viewed uh, by today's Mormon leaders as a threat to his status because they have pushed so hard for the narrative to give us a conclusion that Joseph Smith wasn't like other men. He was a direct prophet from God. And, you know, he more or less got all of his information in a vacuum. There was no environmental influence. Man, that was the big thing when I was a teenager going through seminary and preparing for my mission is, yeah. is uh, no, no, no. Joseph Smith was isolated. Nothing influenced him except the Lord God Almighty. So would you think, see, you're giving, you're giving Joseph Smith credit, but it might be detrimental in the Mormon mind. How can we overcome that? Well, you know, it's, it, it has, there's been a trend in Mormon apologetics to present Joseph as an idiot. Right, right. As somebody, as somebody who never read a book. Right. As somebody who couldn't spell. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. That's, and 
Did, didn't know Jerusalem had walls. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, um, you know, I, I won't name names, but one particular scholar was making quite a deal on Facebook for a while. Oh, name to... the name. Name the name. We want to know. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're you're a scholar and a gentleman. Yeah, I, I'm telling you. You know, this individual was trying very hard to prove that Joseph Smith could not have written the Book of Mormon right. himself because right. he was too stupid. Right. Yep. It, it, it in so many words. And... And he's, very, he's being very manipulative in how he tried to present this, but yeah. he was daring people basically to prove Joseph's IQ. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that if he couldn't prove that Joseph was smart enough to write this book, then it had to be from God. Yeah. Right. This, this idea in Mormon apologetics is so unfortunate because it actually goes against Mormon scripture. It, what it, What is. The whole experience of Oliver Cowdery when he tried to translate. You have the revelation. Good point. Saying, you took no more thought than to ask me. You need to study it out first. And then ask me if it's right. Yeah. So Good point. The, the track that the apologists ought to be taking, from my perspective, is that Joseph was in a position to bring all these threads together with, call it creativity, call it inspiration, call it revelation, call it what you will. And that's going to be your lens. But he brought these influences together in a particular way. After all, isn't that what a re isn't that what a restorer does, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, I mean, the the Old Testament, and I'm I'm sorry, I'm I'm blanking the name of which prophet it is that you know that found the older writings. Josiah. Um, yeah, you know, Josiah. It was a king. He was a king. Yeah, yeah, uh -huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. King Josiah was in this position of finding the records that had been essentially lost. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and, right. And. <laughs> as I understand it, likely altered them, but brought them forth and you know, restored them to to the Israelite people. Yeah. Yeah, that's one interpretation. So, uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. So this idea I, I think I think we need to give Joseph credit. And it does not harm faith to say that he was brilliant and that he brought all these things together. Yeah. You can say this is what he did and he had divine inspiration in doing that. If, if that, you know, if that's your perspective, that is completely consistent. It is. Yeah. That, that actually, that actually gives a better consistency than the strategy of the apologetic angle from my opinion, at this point, now of of course, one of my uh, one of my good friends, one of my audience members, my patrons, T.O. He uh, he actually got me onto the Lithuanian metaphysician Algis Uzdavinis, and he is absolutely just blowing me away. That adds to the spiritual overall 
Well, going from darkness to light, right? The Masonic theme. There we go. In in the ancient materials and how we ought to be a, be recognizing that the grand synthesis from the ancient mysteries, just because Platonism, you know, one of the scholars said everything past Plato after Plato is just footnotes in a way that's accurate in a way it's kind of silly, but Platonism was influenced by the earlier uh, Pythagoreans who were influenced by the earlier Orphism who was influenced by the ancient Egyptians. That's the ancient line, but Everyone was gathering all of the various materials and synthesizing them. And that added to the luster, that added to the context and the greater spirituality and light. Why not the same with Joseph Smith? Right. Yeah. I love how you've done that in this book, man. It's, it's, it's spec in my opinion it's a spectacular success so well, thank you absolutely i i've encouraged a lot of people to buy it and fortunately there's several in the in the audience that are saying oh yeah I've, I've got if not if not directly by the print then they're doing the uh the uh kindle edition so and 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 it's it's fun i'm going to be actually talking with doug vincent here this afternoon uh two o'clock <laughs> about his impression with with some areas in the uh in the book that we want to talk about so it's a lot of fun. And, I'll, and i'll have cheryl tonight at eight so i'm gonna get her view too so well if i, if I can just put a plug in you know those of you sure. who are reading the book and are enjoying it please go to amazon.com and to goodreads and leave reviews yeah yeah because yeah. because that is how people understand what this book is about what this book where this book is coming from um excellent you know, it, point yeah it, it, it takes it takes that word of mouth and that encouragement uh, because people are so used to seeing books on this topic as shallow or attack yeah and, and it's so neither yeah the, the more people say this is my experience this is what i learned the more that the real impression can get out there. So please leave reviews. Hey, T.O., how you doing? Sorry, I'm waving hi to my man in Hawaii. <laughs> Good to see you. I'm glad you got on. I'm, I'm talking with Nick Letursky right now, one of the authors of Method Info. T.O., this is the gentleman that got me on Uzdavinus. So, oh, yeah, okay. I'm glad he's in the audience now. He's four hours earlier, so he's up pretty early right now. So, <laughs> ah, good stuff, man. Yeah, and Doug Vincent is now saying it's definitely a must-read. I'm not sure how far Doug's gotten into it. He just got it just a couple days ago, but he's, he's probably okay. about halfway through it. So, Oh, and Debbie Jo, welcome. She's finally here. Uh, well, uh, Dr. Lentursky, let me ask, uh, Debbie Joe's asking, are you almost done? We don't have to be. What else would you like to say about the book uh, if you if you want to include more information? You'll definitely want to watch this video, Debbie, when you get a chance. Not a big deal that you missed it, but uh, we're having a good time live. I hope uh, I hope Dr. Lentursky has been, uh, I've, I hope the level of sound has been good. I haven't seen anyone complaining when I actually moved the phone to the center of the screen here. Uh, okay. There were a couple comments saying, yes, yes, that's better. So I do believe they've heard you because of their comments, you know, so. <laughs> well, good. I'm 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, ha I'm happy to answer questions. Uh, yeah. What questions do you guys have for Dr. Letursky? We would love to field as many questions as we can. That would be wonderful. I, yeah. yeah. You I guys. See, I see Gene Hudson. I, I see Gene Judson asked how many copies have been sold. Um, I, I don't know exactly because it's kind of multiple venues for that. Um, but my understanding is, you know, a few hundred have already sold. Uh, this hardback printing, I can tell you, um, they printed a thousand copies. Oh, nice. Uh, a, a, a portion of which they held back just as unbound text blocks uh, so they can do special projects later on if they choose. But uh, this will likely be the only time you can get the book in hardback. Once the hardbacks are sold out, which I think will probably be before the end of the year, then it's going to be paperback. Which, if you're like me, you want the hardback. <laughs> <laughs> I, I personally do, simply because I'm I'm so hard on my books. I'll show my book here. Number one, I put all kinds of tabs in, and because I like talking about it, and it's easy to flip. But the second thing I always do with my books, because indexes in the back of books. Yeah, I make I make my own index. I have to because indexes in books suck. So I like to cross-reference and parallel uh, various ideas. And you can see here where I've talked about the ascent in Freemasonry. I know Joe uh, had a major argument with Bill Hamblin when he was alive on this topic. And the more I read, the more I found. So I had to start pointing arrows up and including extra pages because I do want to do an entire discussion on this topic of Masonic ascent. I mean, you know, the Royal Arch, you've got the winding stairway. And, yeah. Sure. You Fun. need to do what my best friend did, Gary. What's that? My best, my best friend had bought two copies from me. Okay. One that he's, he's going to read and, other, and another one that he's going to keep pristine. <laughs> Not a bad idea. Not a bad idea at all. That Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very good idea. Um, I'm going to try like crazy to, uh, I, I'm going to see after we're done. Anybody else have any questions for Dr. Letursky or something you want him to talk about? Uh, oh, oh, here we go. Did Joseph ever publicly reveal the lost word, lost name? If so, what did he say? Yeah, that's interesting. Wonderful question. Yeah. Wonderful question. Um, and I'm going to answer it in part because it, the answer to that question leads into my next book. Oh, um, nice. <laughs> nice. Very good. So we get the inside track here. There, there is a magical aspect to answer that question. All that said, as you, as you read Method Infinite, you will learn that toward the end of Joseph's ministry, um, he came into the lodge late one evening. The lodge is in the middle of working, and he should, you know, he knocks at the door to come in. He's admitted by the Tyler, and he and, and I say they're they're not in the middle of ceremony, but they're in, in meeting. Yeah, he, he's a, the Tyler allows him to come in, and he announces to everybody, "Hallelujah, Hallelujah, Hallelujah! I have finally done what King Solomon." King Hiram of Tyre and King Solomon could not do. I've established the kingdom, no more to be set down, etc. He had been meeting with the twelve 
and other members of the Quorum of the Anointed that day. Okay. As a Mason, Joseph's words on that occasion are enormously important. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, Freemasonry, the legends of Freemasonry are surrounding this idea of a lost word. Mm -hmm. The lost word is an incredibly powerful word. Mm -hmm. uh, it is, you know, the word of creation. The word was known in Masonic legend by King Solomon, King Hiram of Tyre, and Hiram of Ep. The three of them covenanted together that they would only reveal that word if the three of them were together and united right. to do so. Yeah, it took all three. Yeah, yeah. It took all three. Yeah. A few workers on the temple, King Solomon's temple, became impatient. They'd been promised that once the temple was completed, they would receive the word as a reward. Yeah. But they became impatient, and they decided that they would confront Hiram Abib in order to obtain that word. Yeah. And in turn, each of them demanded the word, and he refused, and they attacked him physically. Yeah. Finally, he was killed by the by the third of these what they call refugees. Because Hiram Abiff was killed, the covenant that the three had made could not be fulfilled. Operational. Yeah. They're no longer, the three no longer could do it, and the word was lost. Mm -hmm. So masonry has a substitute word. But the idea is still there that the individual mason is seeking that ultimate revelation in, in their own spiritual and personal development. Yeah. So for Joseph to say, I have done what King Solomon, King Hiram of Tyre, and Hiram of could not do, it is exactly that. It is the fact that he has acquired and been able to pass on what he believes to be the, the lost word. word. Oh, interesting tie-in. Yeah. That itself, that, that is the crowning moment. Of it, Joseph's work. It would be right. Yeah. 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 Very interesting. Oh, I, the other thing I, I I'm going to try like crazy to get a hold of uh, Dan Vogel today or tomorrow and try to get him on here too, because I was impressed with the way you guys uh, utilized his excellent materials in the five volume early documents of, or documents of early Mormonism. But I was also really impressed with the way you, I mean, Dan Vogel is well known for the book of Mormon being an anti-Masonic book and he makes his case really decently, not in an antagonistic manner, but he's tying that into the American political system, what, what is happening during the elections and the politics in the Jackson era. And you guys come along and you show how you're not refuting Dan Vogel, you're completing his analysis. There is an anti-Mormon strain in the Book of Mormon. Now, this is early in Joseph's life, you guys. <laughs> this is this is before 1829, and yet you show also that the anti-Masonic materials in the Book of Mormon is of the spurious masonry. Right. There is also a 
restored masonry. So, so you're, you're, it seems to me like Bogle had the half of circle very well. And you guys provided the other circle, the other half right. of the circle to complete. Yeah. I thought that was extremely well done and interesting. I, I'm hoping to get Dan Vogel on. I, I would like to this weekend, but if not, I'll try to get him on because I, I thought that was exceptionally impressive that uh, not only is Vogel appearing to me to be on the right track, but there is yet again, because of 20 years of fantastic research in this method infinite, you guys, uh, Dr. Letursky and Cheryl Bruno and Joe Swick were able to expand and complete the fabulous research of Dan Vogel even and give us a better con. I loved that man, that better context. So I see, I see Joe Walker is asking whether Joseph was ever exalted in the Royal Arch. Um, really, that's a really good question, and, and you're not the only one to ask it. We do not have evidence, direct evidence, that Joseph received the Royal Arch degrees. Mm -hmm. However, uh, many of the early Mormons were Royal Arch Masons. A Newell K. Whitney, for example, was one. Newell K. Whitney was even involved in an effort to create a Royal Arch chapter in Warsaw. Uh, there, there, we found a newspaper article that he and others had placed trying to gather together Royal Arch Masons and establish a chapter. Mm -hmm. um, James Adams, who of course was, you know, what became the deputy Grand Master of Illinois, was a Mormon, was directly involved with Joseph was also a Royal Arch Mason and a member of the Royal Arch Chapter in Springfield, Illinois. The Royal Arch Chapter in Springfield uh, followed an old tradition that many Blue Lodges did at the time, which was instead of saying, oh, we meet the first Wednesday of the month, they met on the full moon. And from a practical standpoint, that allowed easier travel at night because you could see where sure. you were going. Sure. Yeah. Uh, there, may, there may have been other mystical reasons for that, but that was the practical reason. The silver light of the moon, as opposed to the golden right. light from the sun. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So I actually made the effort to try to figure out the moon cycles for the time periods when Joseph went to Springfield for days at a time. It is possible that Joseph received the Royal Arch degrees in Springfield. However, the records for that time period were lost in a, a major fire that destroyed, destroyed many records. You know, Book Abraham records were lost that way up in Chicago, too, darn it. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> it'd be, it'd be, and that's, that's the one thing, you know, Cheryl and I talked about. You know, we're, this book is finally out, and you watch. We're going to start discovering things now that change the narrative even more. It, and and it, it's inevitable. People. Yeah, that's inevitable. Yeah, which is part of the wonderful thing of scholarship. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, in the book, we do not claim that Joseph received the Royal arch. However, he certainly knew about it. The Royal arch had already been exposed. So he, he, you know, you could certainly read about it fully. The Morgan affair, True. you know, True. the Morgan affair was about revealing the Royal arch. It wasn't about the blue lodge. 
the Blue Lodge had already been exposed in numerous publications. Excellent observation. So Will, yeah. William Morgan was threatening to expose the Royal Arch, and that's what people had had people incensed. And of course, his reasoning was that the Royal Arch didn't believe his Masonic bona fides and would not admit him. So, you know, his, his expose was a revenge project, essentially. Huh. Hey, uh, Dr. So, Dr. Latursky, are you seeing Mormon Yeshiva's next comment? That that would be, uh, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Were you done? Or I, no, I just want, I just sure. want you to yeah. see his, Nick, it is my understanding yeah. that the Royal Arch, you see that? Right. Yeah. The, the, the Royal Arch is considered, uh, the fourth at least within the, the chapters as the completion of the master Mason of the degree. master. That was my understanding. The fourth degree, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. 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 I just yeah. wanted to make sure you saw his yeah. comment. So that, that's, that's that, a, yeah, that said, that kind of separation happened prior to Joseph's time. Uh, you know, so he did, he can't say that by being raised a master Mason, he received the Royal Arch. Right. But, you know, in, in this book, you'll find there are many things that we cannot point to absolute 100% proof. Right. But we have to bring the threads together. Right. And you bring the, the circumstantial threads together and you say, well, here's the argument. The probability here's, increases. Yeah. Here's, here's why we think this particular thing happened. Mm -hmm. We try to be very careful of holding ourselves to that standard. And if we couldn't make the good argument... It didn't go in the book. And so, you know, there's not, we don't say in the book that Joseph received the Royal Arch because we can't prove it, even though there are some evidences that he could have. Right. Well, um, and, and that's the fun of continuing keeping our eyes open and continuing researching. What you did in this book, uh, Dr. Latursky, in my opinion, is you upped the probability, which is the best we can do as historical researchers and writers, knowing that in the future, evidence can come along either to change to a more negative assessment or to change to a more positive assessment. And that's the best right. we can do. That you guys stuck to that Bayesian epistemology, whether you even knew you did or not, is part of what makes this book much better than any other book published on this subject. So really, truly, that's, I mean, that's very not, much appreciated. Yeah, I mean, there's, there are still... Uh, items related to Freemasonry that are um, in the church archive that are not, that are not accessible. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and, and so who knows? You know, I mean, they're, they're, yeah. they're, I've seen record of a few letters such as that. Yeah. So for all we know, those letters could suddenly be released sure. and add a whole lot to the story. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, Hopefully, but, it will. That but, would be cool. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's that is the nature of scholarship. Yep. And there, are, there are things in Method Infinite that I'm sure will be either proven or disproven down the road. Sure. But this, this puts the this puts the discussion on a firm footing, at least. Amen. Yeah. And, and and it also gives an opportunity here. And this is the other thing that, I, I mean, there's so much about this book that I so enjoyed because 
This is not a polemical attack. This is not even a response to what has gone before. This is a discussion, open invitation for further discussion from all angles. I really appreciate that in this book, seriously. And it's excellent research. So, so you guys did the, the philosophical approach you did to this subject, in my opinion, needs to be done. Hopefully it'll lead the direction into an actual more uh, useful dialogue. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, the kind of dialogue that should happen, and just a, as an example, uh, Jeff Bradshaw is uh-huh. coming out with his own book. Good, a good, fr- a good friend of mine. I like him. He's okay. a good guy. Yeah, he's he's coming out with his own book that is a um, discussion of Freemasonry as it reflects toward temple ordinances specifically. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And he actually came to Cheryl and I with the chapters of his book and asked us to review them and offer suggestions and corrections. Ah, nice. Uh, not only did he want to make sure that he was reflecting our views accurately, he wanted our help in conveying his ideas. Uh, um, well, that's what it's all about. That we don't agree with everything that Jack is saying, right. and he doesn't agree with everything we're saying. Right. But we've been able to have this wonderful, cordial relationship where you know we can say, well, here's what you wrote here. Is this really what you mean to say? Because it sounds like you're saying such and such. And he's like, oh, gosh, no, that wasn't my intention. So you've been able to help him in preparing his book, even if we have very different views. That kind of discussion is what I would love to see. That's what needs to happen. Yep. We don't need to be at odds. We can all be looking for the same light of knowledge. Yes. Even even if we have different perspectives. Uh, the, and the, I love the fact I love the fact that not once has Jeff, you know, minimized my input as a non believer. You know, he's he's completely respected my input. And you know, I, I would like to think his book is, is gonna be better for the fact that he did reach out in the way he did. Yeah, that that is good information to know. Uh, Jeff is a quality thinking man. Um, I've known him for years. I've got both of his books on the book of Moses, and the one is absolutely sumptuous. But he obviously knows how to put excellent thought into subjects. The fact that he has reached out and connected with you and Cheryl, that does my heart good. See, I'm actually ending up being a little bit more combative than I probably should be (laughs) in anticipation of the typical Mormon apologetic. Now, I'm aware that Jeff is also uh, in a high position associated with Dan Peterson's interpreter. And, And so this is a wonderful opportunity, I think. And it sounds to me like you guys have handled this very well. We need to build bridges, not yes. shoot each other across the flipping river now, right? Yeah. Exactly. That that would be my approach. Yeah. I, I love how yeah. you're you're doing this. Yeah. So and, serious. And Jeff, is, Jeff is going to be publishing a review of the book. Uh, oh, good. Yeah. Well, he should. Um, oh, sure. He should. You know, it's, yeah. Absolutely. And, 
and, and I, I have to, I have to give credit. I fully expected, um, that we would see some of the old style, very ad hominem attacks. Right. And, and of course I, as the, uh, gay apostate, <laughs> yeah. uh, be- become the easy target. Sure. That sort of thing. Sure. So yeah. I, so I fully expected people to say, oh, this book is, you know, not trustworthy, et cetera, because one of the authors is this person. Yeah. I have not seen anyone. Um, granted, like I said earlier, I have seen a couple people who are like, oh, you're not all believing Latter-day Saints. I'm not even going to read it. Fine. Whatever. Right. But I've you're not lost. seen anybody. I've not seen any reviewer, any, any serious person commenting that has gone for that kind of ad hominem argument. You know, this gives us hope that perhaps there is a percolating maturity that is going to bubble up from all of us from all sides to, to stop attacking, counterattacking and perhaps learn together. I really like that. I really do. I mean, even fair, um, you know, fair has a bookstore on their website Uh and yeah, I, I was, very surprised to see they they have our book being sold through their website through their bookstore listed on the top four of what they're calling recommended reading oh that's wonderful so so it's it's really heartening to me that people are beginning to see if this is not a polemical work it's not either a discussion of the history and an expansion of our understanding and appreciation of Joseph, whatever our lens may be. Right. Well, kudos to Fair for that also. Um, th- that that is that is also very encouraging. So, yeah, I'm uh, I, I'm I'm thrilled to hear all this. This is see, this is why I wanted John, Doctor Litersky, because only <laughs> you have these kind of insights, and and they are important. And there's nothing really trivial to kind of dismiss all of it kind of comes in the hopper and we all come out better for having it so so this is fabulous any other questions you guys you would like to uh ask dr Litursky while he's here we we've got all the time in the world if you want oh i should i love to I love Debbie Joe's comment. Fires hate historians. Yes. Fires hate. <laughs> I love that. Right. Boy, that's an insight. Yeah. Ike. Come on, historians. You got to make friends with the fire. <laughs> Yowzer. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Joe Walker seems to be very fairly knowledgeable. We're, we're really glad you're here. We're glad all of you here. Mormon Yeshiva. I know I owe you a discussion also on the uh, Jaredite barges. I know you've been after me. I've been, I've been needing to, to get through this weekend with the Freemasonry because I have uh, wonderful options to uh, share the authors and their views. So I, I've been taking that tack at this point, but uh Oh, we appreciate all of you. Okay, you guys, T.O., thank you for showing up. It's always good. Yeah, yeah, I do, Mormon Yeshiva. Keep on me. I, I will. I absolutely am open to discussing stuff, so not a problem. But uh, Dr. Litursky, is there anything you would like to add to find a kind of so – it seems to me like you did a pretty good sum up. I should have shut up and stopped it there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
there there are obviously many more things we could talk about. Um, there you know, I don't want to spill I don't want to spill all the secrets in the book and right, spoil right, it for right. readers, but well, I'll tell you what I would like to do if it's okay with you. Um, you are so knowledgeable and you're so congenial. And this has been such a delight for the audience and for myself and hopefully for you. Let's, uh, what if we tentatively, of course, plan perhaps after a couple of reviews come out and we've had a chance to, I, I can alert you to what I find. You can alert me to what you find. Let's read those and perhaps do another uh, get together on the show here in a couple months or two, however long sure, it takes, absolutely. doesn't matter, and, and kind of carry on this spirit that we're uh, putting into effect here, thanks to your wonderful labors of making this a dialogue, not a fight. I, I would really enjoy seeing that occur over the next 200 years. You know what I mean? So when the reviews come in, let's, let's get back together if that's okay with you. Sure. That'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. That would be, that would be fantastic. Oh, and they're all thanking you and, and I thank you. Yeah. Seems like the audience is, yes, please come back. I will have him back. Mormon Yeshiva. What was he, was the uh, phone conversation loud enough? You guys, I'm going to attempt to upgrade my ability to carry on interviews with people with the cameras uh, as well. But uh, I have seen phone interviews done before. And if it's done right, these are also very effective. Uh, Dr. Latursky, you've been absolutely wonderful. Thank you again for for uh, coming on the show. I, I, I believe the audience really enjoyed it. Yep. Awesome. Thank you. Yes. Uh, we will have more Dr. Latursky. Don't forget today at two, uh, Doug Vincent and I are going to have a conversation for a while. And tonight at eight, Cheryl Bruno will also add her insights. And tomorrow at one o'clock, I believe it's one o'clock. I am going to be talking to, former master Mason of the lodge and uh, master Mason Clinton Bartholomew. And I will be talking with him tomorrow at one about method infinite. And then of course, tomorrow I'm going to be chattering and sharing new insights. I have found from other Masonic materials. I'm going to do more settings today. I'm going to do more discussions tomorrow. I might have as many as five or six podcasts up, but this, this was one of the ones that I really, really, really wanted to get. And thank you again, Dr. LaJersey. So we are going to sign off for the moment, uh, two o'clock. Let's see. It's 1130. I may very well do another one between, uh, one and two, and then get Doug Vincent on because there's so much of this stuff that we have that we can share. So, Everybody, thank you for showing up. Our pleasure. Dr. Latursky, once again, you are a pleasure to talk to. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. My it. good pleasure.